Very, very cool. Well, welcome everybody. It's good to have you in church, if you, especially if you're visiting with us for the first time. Warm welcome to you. Um, we have Pastor Daniel from Uganda, and I thought uh, we can't have him in the meeting without saying hi. So. Greetings to you all in the name of our Lord Jesus, as we say it in Africa. Yeah. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for your prayers. I just want to thank you so much for your love, for your care, and for your great support. We last came here uh, last year with my wife. She has not come this time with me uh, because of some, yeah, she had to take care of the children, and then we've been moving from the former house to our house. And I just want to thank you so much for that great support. That you, you've been a blessing. The church has been a blessing so much. We just want to say thank you so much. And secondly, we want to thank God for our dear pastors. They are so great. Uh, they are so, I mean, they are nice. They are good people. You, you always want to be closer to them. I've been able to, uh, pastor this year, we had a goal of uh, planting 12 churches as we go out preaching the message of the grace. But I just want to report that out of our goal of planting 12 churches within this year, we've been able to send out 38 leaders to plant 38 churches just within one year from our church. So the Lord is doing amazing work. And we just want to thank God for that. May the Lord bless you. Amen. Thank you. Well, during this weekend, we've had um, some friends, regional coordinators from World Without Orphans and Friends, and um, why that's important to us is because built into the foundation of our church is this call to neighbors and nations, that we want to reach those who are close, and we want to reach into the nations of the world. We just passed a milestone this uh, year, uh, actually this past week, where, where we had 104 people have come to know Jesus this year through members of the church and through different exercises. So I was just so chuffed with that, that um, God is busy using, because souls being saved is a big deal for us. And so we want to impact our neighbors, but we also want to impact the nations of the world. And one of the ways the Lord has given us to do that is to minister through World Without Orphans. We have people from Argentina, Bulgaria, Brazil, Canada, the Czech Republic, India, Kenya, Paraguay, Romania, Sri Lanka, Switzerland, Uganda, Ukraine, United Kingdom, USA, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. I'm going to ask the world with our teams if, if you would stand, please, just so that we can welcome you. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. Uh, these are just beautiful people who have given up their lives to ensure that vulnerable children and orphans find a loving home. And uh, I just esteem them. So thank you. It's nice to be part with you. It's great to have you in our church. Uh, Luke 14, 12, Jesus said this. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your family or your brothers or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. And you will be repaid. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And then you'll be blessed. For although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection. 
I'm not saying everything about our finances needs to be about that, but at least a portion of my giving needs to be to people who have no hope of being able to repay me. At least a portion of our finances needs to go to somebody that perhaps will never find out it was you. At least something of your finances needs to be given away in such a manner that the only way you can get repaid is when you see him face to face. And so I want to, th I want to throw that at you because it's what hit me this week. At least a portion of what you do with your finance needs to go to people uh, that are just praying, God, could you make a way? I see no way, but could you help me? And you can be the answer to that prayer. And when you do, do it in Jesus' name, uh, if certainly not your own. Amen? Amen? There's various ways you can give, and we thank you for your faithfulness, and so, so exciting to be part with you in what God has been doing through us this year. We're starting a new series right now. Let me see how much time I have. Oh, you're in trouble. <laughs> the lifestyle of Jesus. We are talking about adopting the practices of Jesus to navigate the modern world. Uh, we've been thinking about this John Mark Comer quote quite a lot, where he said, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. You can't get that life. We can't look into the scriptures and see the fruit of the life of Jesus and then not want to walk the way Jesus did. I want the fruit that Jesus had. I just don't want to have to walk the way Jesus did. And Oftentimes, as believers, we act as though we have a mix-and-match option. I want this action, and I'm going to pair it with that result. And that'd be nice. I want to embrace these practices, and I want to match them with those consequences. I want to sow apple seeds, and I want to reap oranges. And it doesn't work that way. How many of you discovered that? I've tried, man. I really have. But Galatians, Paul says, listen, don't, don't be deceived. God's not mocked you're going to reap exactly what you sow. If you sow to please the Spirit, from the Spirit, you'll reap life and peace. But if you sow to please the flesh, you'll reap destruction. And some of us are you know, sowing wild oats, praying for a crop failure. God, you know, help. There's this moment of time when we, we have to face the truth of, like, if I, I really want to walk in the peace of God, I really want to live in the kingdom of God, then I have to start to walk the way the king walked. I have to submit myself. It was a, a whisper of a scripture that's been hanging around the halls here for the preaching team for some months. Never been far away from our minds that we've been preparing the last two sermon series. And it probably encapsulates best what we are attempting to try and say in our message. And the context of the scripture is Israel is in a bad shape. Uh, the morally and spiritually, they're not doing well. And so the Lord sends Jeremiah the prophet and he, this is what he said. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we are not going to walk in it. Why is there no rest for my soul? Because I said to you, stand when you have at the crossroads, when there is a moment of time where you have various options, stand at the crossroads and look and ask, where is the ancient way? Where is the good path? And then walk in that path. And then you will find rest for your soul. So many times there's this 
life-saving wisdom in the old ancient paths of God's wisdom. The tried and tested ways that have been battle-tested and temptation-tested and stress-tested, proven to walk whether in plenty or in none or under pressure or in pleasure, the newest shiny thing of our culture, the unproven, untested thing whose ramifications are yet to be seen, always are going to make light and mock the, the ancient paths of the truths of God's wisdom. So he says, stand, look, ask, and walk. Those are the verbs. So this series is dedicated to the practice and walking like Jesus walked to navigate this modern world well. So I'm going to throw in a few ideas. I want to throw into the mix a few concepts. We're going to talk a concept or two a little bit, and then we're going to try and stir it together, and hopefully at the end a clear picture will emerge for you. Let me start with what I call the Babylonian conspiracy. The Babylonian conspiracy. I was reading uh, end of Revelation, and I, and I came across Revelation 14, Revelation 18, and there was this big celebration at the end of those about Babylon the great has fallen. Revelation 14 says the second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And Revelation 18 says, and after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the whole earth was illuminated by his splendor. And with a mighty voice, he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons, the haunt of every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. The big celebration at the end of time seems to be this delight that Babylon, the final adversary, the worst of its kind, is finally defeated. The great prostitute who has seduced all the nations of the world has been taken down. And now the kingdoms of this world, they have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. We're not talking about Babylon, the physical city. Iraq is no longer the dominant force of the globe that it once was. We're talking about a style of rebellion against God, a system of those who oppose truth, what is crystallized into a concept, a lifestyle called Babylon, that which resists the truth of God, which stands opposed and opposite against the kingdom of God. Babylon in the scriptures was um, marked by a few things as you read through the scriptures. First thing you st that jumps out at you is the Tower of Babel where Mankind, God said, spread out and I'll bless you. And they said, we're not spreading anywhere. We're going to stay together and we are going to make a name for ourselves. And fundamentally at the core of Babylon is selfish ambition. We will make a name for ourselves and we will build our own religion up to God. We will make a way. We don't want to listen to what God has to say. We've got this. We'll do this. Selfish ambition. King Nebuchadnezzar standing in Babylon, and he goes, look at this great city that I've built. And the Lord had been warning him about his arrogance, and he, and he just, and he was like, look at me, look how good I am. And God took his mind for seven years and said, no, no. And at the end of the seven years, he goes, no, no, I'm not the great one. The God Almighty is the great one. Yeah. So arrogance is foundational, selfish ambition, arrogance. The love of money is another one. Sexual immorality is another one. Idolatry. The love of money is built into idolatry. Now, 
One of the things that, this is just Haswell theory, but I travel a, a little through different churches and different people, and I feel that if we're not vigilant, we'll end up creating churches or businesses and families that are Babylonian in their structure, but Christian in their furnishings. The posters stuck on the Babylonian walls that seem to sanitize them to Christian understanding. Sometimes I see churches or conferences or businesses like the selfish ambition and arrogance and, and the love of money are not only accepted but celebrated in the structure. But then we stick Christian posters on it and we wonder why it has no authority, why there is no kingdom presence, why it doesn't break the power of the enemy, why it has no authority to change and turn the kingdoms of this world around. Am I preaching to myself? Does anybody understand what I'm saying? And the problem with those places is though they are Babylonian in their structure, they're Christian in their furnishings and it's muddying the waters. Because some people think that's Christianity. Some people think that's the kingdom. And they see no delight in it and they find no passion. And the, the problem I think has with theory again or why so many young people are walking away from the church is because they see no guts. There's no authority. There's nothing inherently powerful about this thing that we call the kingdom, which is actually Babylonian structure with Christian posters. The New Testament talks quite a bit about this, this Babylonian or pagan way of doing things. Jesus said, if you, if you love and you greet only those who love you back, that's just the way the pagans do. That's Babylon. My kingdom doesn't do that. In my kingdom, you love those who despitefully use you. Hello. He said, Babylonian spiritualities, they go in and they babble. They, they long prayers and, 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 oh. Juan Carlos Ortiz, he was, in, he was invited to open up a large conference, 80,000 people, all the fancy bishops on the stage. They said, great honor, would you open this conference in prayer? And he said, yeah. So he went and he wrote a really spiritual prayer out. And he got up and he said, oh, gracious God and loving heavenly Father. And the Lord said to him, what are you doing? He said, Lord, I'm, I'm opening this conference in prayer. All these people. The Lord said, okay, I'll talk to you afterwards. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll talk to you later. Chasing an accumulation of wealth. Jesus said the pagans do that. That's Babylonian. Idolatry and greed. It's acceptable in Babylon. It's not only acceptable, it's celebrated. It's the way you get ahead. Not so in the kingdom. We're called to be free of that way of life. So, repentance is needed. Repentance is needed. Matthew 3, Matthew 4, in those days, John the Baptist came on the scene saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The subject of your repentance was not your sin. He did not say repent and feel guilty because your sins are vast. He said, take a new mind because the kingdom's about to blow in. And if you don't change the way you're thinking, you're gonna miss my kingdom. Jesus said, repent, take a new mind, think differently, rethink this whole process because my kingdom is about to blow in here. And if you don't 
think differently, the kingdom will be an affront to you and not the blessing that you've been longing for. Robertson's word pictures of the New Testament says about that word repent because it's the most it's the worst translated word into English in the New Testament. Because what we think that word means and what it actually means in the original language are so far apart that it's frightening. Broadus used to say that this was the worst translation in the New Testament. The trouble is that the English word repent means to be sorry, again, from the Latin reponate, impersonal. John did not call the people to be sorry, but to change their mental attitudes, to think afterwards, to rethink metanoite and conduct. This is John's great word and it has been hopelessly mistranslated. The tragedy of it is that we have no one English word that reproduces exactly the meaning and atmosphere of the Greek word. The Greek has a word meaning to be sorry, metameloma, which is exactly our English word repent. And it's only used once in the New Testament of Judas just before he threw the money back. He was sorry that he had done it. and threw the money back at them. This is what Paul called the basic spiritual philosophy of this world. Because unredeemed people, Babylonian people, have a way they think about how spiritual life should be. We'll build, we'll build a, an edifice. We'll, we'll reach God. We can do this together. The unredeemed's mind has an answer to spiritual need. It's skewed logic and darkened understanding. And if we're not careful, we start to think about God like they do. That probably is the worst crime on the planet for those who have been emancipated, who have been given the mind of Christ, who have access to the glories above and yet limit themselves to the scratching around in the dirt that other people who are unredeemed have to stick with. You understand? You were born for more than that. You have the mind of Christ. You have the Spirit of God whose, whose job, whose passion is to illuminate you and to guide you into all truth. You were born for so much more than just scratching around as in the basic spiritual understanding of unredeemed people. That's why John and Jesus said, you have to repent. You gotta think differently about this thing. Because I wanna show up in your life and I wanna transform everything about you, but you have to change the way you think. And you have, to, you have to push back a little bit from this Babylonian structure that is so prevalent around us and we call it the kingdom of God and it is so far from the kingdom, it's frightening. Seek the kingdom, it's hiding in plain view. Matthew 6. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. I want to take you into the, a little bit back, and I'm going to read from verse 31. So don't worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The context there is verse 19. Jesus says, don't store up treasures for yourselves on earth, because where, where your treasure is, there's, that's where your heart will be. 
So store up treasures in heaven because then your heart will be drawn there. He said, your eyes, your lamp of your body, and, and, and this is verse 22. And he said, basically, he's saying, if you have a habitual lifestyle of stinginess, it's going to affect your whole being. But if you have a habitual lifestyle of generosity, that'll produce light and beauty in your life. Verse 24, he said, categorically, you cannot serve both God and money. So that's why I'm telling you, you have to push money aside. You have to step back from it. It cannot be the principle that governs your heart. And he said, don't worry about your life and don't worry about your body. You can't add a single inch to your life or a single day or a little bit of quality to your life by worrying. I've tried. So have you. And he said, look, the birds are fed and flowers are clothed and you're worth so much more than birds and flowers. And your heavenly Father will feed you and clothe you and he'll look after you. Seek the kingdom. This is a rule of life. They're asking Jesus. Jesus is explaining this is the way you function. This, if you want health in, the, in life in general, this is the basic baseline principle. Seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added to you. We talk about a culture of hurry where people have hurry sickness. Much of hurry sickness in our life and certainly in our culture is driven by a need for finance. Sometimes I play hide and seek with my granddaughter and I have to go hide. And I hide poorly. <laughs> if I hid really well, she'd never find me. But I hide with the door open, with my foot sticking out. <laughs> now if she comes running through the room, she'll miss me. But if she's really looking, I'll be found by her. There's something going on. And the truth about the way God has structured and set up this life is that he hides in plain view, hidden just enough for those who are not seeking to miss, but, um, but not veiled at all to anybody who is looking for him. Are you tracking? Imagine if I said to my granddaughter, you go and hide, because I just wanted some time off. Okay, go hide well, and I'm coming, and then went, and I just didn't go looking. And God, who set up this hiding thing, says, seek. And the world says, no thanks. God is hiding, and very few people are seeking. Isn't that a tragedy? So Jesus said, listen, you're so worried. You can't lift your eyes up beyond your personal need right at the moment. Can you just elevate your eyes just long enough to look into your father's face to see that he's smiling and says, I've got this. Before you knew about your need, I knew about your need. Before you even started to worry, I've already set in motion the provision that's going to meet you in the place that I told you to be. There is nothing for you to worry about, but you are so petrified. We are so caught up that we don't have time to slow down a little and find the kingdom. We're not seeking God. We're so petrified. We're acting like the unsaved neighbors next door. There ought to be some difference. Because it's the delight of both parties when the object of the seeker is found. So God says, listen, this is the way it works. 
You have to understand I'm a rewarder of those who diligently seek. That's the way. So I'm going to hide, but not really well. I'm going to hide, but it's going to be in plain view. Because in Jeremiah, he said, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek for me with your whole heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Isn't that such a cool word? I will be found by you. I found the Lord. Mm. I think he was calling out, hey. And he stuck his foot out. Hey. And you bumped into, tripped over his foot. I found him. <laughs> and you will seek me. And you'll find me. And you seek with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. So Jesus said, this is the rule for life. If you understand this basic premise of how the spiritual realm works, you and I are called on to seek the king and his kingdom. To seek for his righteousness. Not the righteousness that I can bring him, but the righteousness that he can give me when I believe. Seek him and his righteousness. Seek the kingdom. This means... My worries cannot be the paramount issue of my life. What is paramount in my heart and life needs to be the king in his kingdom. Ultimately, I need to send him a supreme message of confidence. I'm going to calm down. I'm going to concentrate on finding you. In the face of my own need and in the face of my own worries, because I'm saying, I believe that you've got this. I know that you care. I believe that you took care of my need before I knew it was coming. So I'm going to busy myself with seeking you and your kingdom. That's, that's the way to think properly about this stuff. So Jesus laid down a rule for life. You want to live the life Jesus lived? You must walk the way Jesus did. And Jesus said, this is the rule. Seek first the kingdom. Above all others, his kingdom. And what makes us right in his eyes. And everything else will be added to you. So I come to the Lord. I go, Lord, I need your kingdom. I'm faced with a strange set of circumstances. I'm, I'm sitting under pressure. I'm seeking the kingdom. The rule for life is what is your kingdom? Where is your kingdom? What is the domain where the king rules? How does this work in my life? I want your rulership over my life, Lord. What is your kingdom's value? Jesus said, seek that first, and I'll give you everything else. And when you get everything else, it'll be because you have a healthy soul an ordered life, a settled pace. I will give you everything else on top of everything that you desire, but I'll give it to you on top because you've sought my kingdom. And in the process of seeking my kingdom, you've come under my dominion. The kingdom is where the king's domain is. You've come under my dominion. If you'll seek my kingdom and you'll submit yourself under me, I will give you a life that'll be the envy of people around you. Because there's some people who've gained the whole world and lost their own soul. Yeah. And it profits them nothing, Jesus said. Yeah. 
So we ask for the ancient road. Lord, could you teach me? I'm looking for your dominion. Could you show me what I should do here? Now, I don't always get a crisp and clear answer immediately every time I ask that question and in every circumstance. It's just the simple truth. But this is not a magic wand. It's a rule for action in life. It's a, it's, a, it's a discipline. It's a habit force that I train myself to get into. Lord, where's your kingdom? What do you want me to do here? What would please you? I'm seeking the kingdom and his righteousness. Lord, what, makes you, what gives you glory? What brings you honor? How do we establish your kingdom? Because he hides in plain view to anyone who's a diligent seeker. And when you set your heart to be a constant and diligent seeker, you're constantly bumping into God in the circumstances of your life. It's a lifestyle, an orientation. And it brings radical changes. And ultimately... You'll find rest for your soul. Hebrews 12. See to that, that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the eldest son. Afterwards, as you know, even though he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. If there is a great tragedy of our times, it's that people have a form of godliness but deny its power. They have a religion without a relationship. They, they profess a king with no hint of his dominion in their life. Babylonian structure, Christian poster. And the Bible says... I don't want there to be anybody among you who's like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights. He uh, looked at the spiritual uh, treasures, the spiritual things, and he considered them about as worth as much as a little bowl of stew. He sold us his eternal estate for a single bowl of temporary stew. That's how much it meant to him. And the tragedy and the danger is that the things of God and the kingdom of God and his dominion and his beauty and his authority and what he has to say becomes as worthless to, to us in this generation as a single bowl of stew. That we easily trade away what could be eternal riches. And the question is, how do, we, how, do we, how do we lasso the church? How do we draw people back to say, do not go down that road. Come back here. Set the kingdom and his dominion. Set eternal realities as a precious thing in your heart. And I wish I could make the decisions for you, but I can only make the decision for me. And you can make it for you. But we have to make a decision at some stage in our life. How important to me are the things of God? How important to me is the kingdom of our God? This must be surely the thing that I pursue more than anything else. Because this was the rule of life Jesus laid down. Seek first the king and his kingdom and his righteousness. Jesus said, you know, the, the pagans, the Babylonians, you know how they lead? Said they, rule it, they rule over people. The officials exercise high authority over those beneath them. Not so with you. 
You're not of that kingdom. You're of my kingdom. This is not how we function in my kingdom. In my kingdom, we don't do that. We don't lord it over. In my kingdom, we serve. The one who is the greatest is the one who serves the most. The one who gets the most applause is the one who sacrificed the most. Amen? You guys have gone quiet on me. Not so with you. Seek the kingdom. Well, what is the kingdom value here? And friends, here's the secret. Because you go, oh, oh, I'm with you, Greg, so far, but I, I guarantee you tomorrow you get into a meeting of somebody who doesn't have the kingdom as their value, and you espouse kingdom values, they're gonna mock you and sneer at you and think that you're naive. Be familiar with the king and his kingdom and walk in his ways. Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. In my heart, I feel like there's a call in the spirit right now. Some people uh, need the applause of other people. Some people are looking for validation from other people. And Paul said it this way. He said, if I, was a, if I was still trying to please people, I couldn't be a servant of Christ. When Jesus turned to Peter, he said, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of men. This, what we're talking about, is not an insignificant thing. It's not a light thing. This is a rule of life. Jesus said, listen, guys, listen, guys. Set up this meter in your heart. Make it your true north. Seek the king and his kingdom and his righteousness. But Greg, what about my career? What about my mark in this life? What about all of the things that settle in my heart? I'm like, bless Bless. Some people in this room are going to do unbelievably incredible things. Bless. Nothing you can conceive of in this world has the ability to even come close to the authority of the kingdom of God. Because this world and its desires, the scripture says, will pass away. But that kingdom is an everlasting, ever increasing kingdom. Greg, what's the best long-term advice you could give me? Seek the king and his kingdom. Because long after this world is consumed by fire, the kingdom of our God will stand. And the more familiar you become with him and his ways. I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm not talking about pointing fingers. I'm not talking about thinking we're better than anybody in the world. I'm just talking about learning an internal reset to constantly be seeking the kingdom. 
to setting our hearts as a value for spiritual things, to turning away and saying, no, I wanna know the Lord. I wanna know what he wants me to do. I wanna understand this king. I wanna hear his voice. I want my life to be suffused with his kingdom, his dominion over me. Because this is what Jesus said. This is what you should pray. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. On earth, just as it is in heaven. That's about all I have to say about that. (laughs) I'd like us to just close in a time of prayer. We're closing a little early, so that's pretty amazing. People say, Greg, how, how am I supposed to do this? You'll figure it out. It can be different for everybody. But tomorrow when you're facing some challenges, when you're facing decisions, when you're under pressure, I hope you remember this. What do I do now, Lord? Well, seek the kingdom. And set it as your heart. Lord, I really want to please you. I really want the kingdom way. Could you show me? And I promise you, if you set that as a, as a constant like heart, cry that keeps yearning that you keep asking holy spirit show me the way what is your kingdom value what is the way i can walk in righteousness here show me the truth you'll begin to discover this constant and steady stream where his voice teaches you this is the way walk in it stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your soul. So Father, here we come. We're asking, Lord, that you would do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. Would you weight the kingdom in our hearts differently? Would you cause, Lord, a a different set Would you cause us to be people, Lord, who are the antithesis of Esau? Would you give us a heart that beats for your kingdom? To see the king's dominion on earth. To see your will being done just as it is in heaven. Would you tune our lives, Lord, to that reality? Would you help us, Lord, weight our hearts towards eternity? Would you set our eyes on things above and our hearts on things above and our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God? Would you cause us, Lord, to please you in every good work? And so I'm asking, Lord, for every person in this place who says, Lord, you know my heart. I really want to do this. I'm asking, Lord, that you would give us grace. And that you cause us to walk in this way. This is a rule of life. I'm going to set the kingdom first. And I pray, Lord, that there would not be a single person among us. Not a single one who's like Esau. Deliver us from Esau, Lord. And deliver us from Babylon. In Jesus' name. Amen.